3: Today's Thursday, December 12, 2019, coming up on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Today's the last day of the House Judiciary Committee marathon, debating and voting on the articles of impeachment. Let's just say that was a wee bit drama today. And if you've got a DUI in your past, you really shouldn't be talking about somebody else and a drug problem, Congressman Matt Getz. College football <laughs> doesn't give black coaches much of a chance, according to the author of a 538 article. He joins us with the receipt black mcdonald's franchise owners are fighting to earn as much as their white counterparts and do you also realize in the last 11 years they lost one third of all black franchisees remember that speech i gave them two months ago mm. coming to pass An elementary school assignment instructs students to set their price as a slave You know how that shit turned out and a florida shares captain is caught on tape instructing an officer to act like a white supremacist. That's not really hard. And as part of our Still Seeking Freedom series, we'll look at the impact of the Marcus Garvey movement. Folks, it's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's
4: on it. Whatever it is, he's
3: The Democrat-controlled House moving forward on articles of impeachment against Donald Trump. Wednesday's Judiciary Committee meeting to consider the articles of impeachment started a two-day committee meeting to debate and vote. Of course, it was long and contentious, filled with drama and a bunch of Republican lies. Here are some of the highlights
1: and lowlights. I believe that only in America can a little black girl the daughter of a maid and a janitor growing up in the south in the 60s have such an amazing opportunity so regardless of the spirited sometimes painful political debates no one can make me give up on america you see i believe in the promise of america because i've seen the promise of America, I come before you tonight as an American dream realized. Because America is great and decent and our democracy complete because we live in a government of the people. I've taken four oaths in my lifetime, two as a law enforcement officer and two now as a member of Congress. Different oaths different times and different places, but each oath stated that I will protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. My oath was not to an individual. It wasn't to a political party or institution. My oath was to the United States Constitution. And I come before you tonight as an African-American female. I come before you tonight as a descendant of slaves, slaves who knew they would not make it, but dreamed and prayed that one day that I would make it. I come before you tonight proclaiming that in spite of America's complicated history, my faith is in the Constitution. And I say that today with perfect peace. I've enforced the laws and now I write the laws. And I know that nobody is above the law, but the law means nothing. If the accused, whether the man who breaks in your house or the president can destroy evidence, stop witnesses from testifying and blatantly refuse to cooperate in the investigation, I ask you to name somebody in your family or in your community who can do that. The president is the commander-in-chief, and his responsibility is great. However, our president put his personal interests above the interests of the nation, corrupting and cheating our democracy, and he shall be held accountable.
5: This is about distraction, distraction, distraction. Our good friends spent three hours saying President did not target the Bidens. Now they're saying that he did. So which is it? Now, I'm holding the classified, unclassified conversation. And uh, let me just clarify a certain point. And that point is that I did read the transcript. And it did say us. But there is nothing in the President's notes that even suggested that the question that he asked was for the American people. In testimony by Mr. Goldman, who obviously uh, went through every aspect of this, I asked a question about uh, whether or not the President said anything from the notes that are given, the briefing that is given by those representatives of the United States government. The staff of the National Security Council, the State Department, the Defense Department on corruption. He didn't speak anything about corruption that he was briefed on. And if you go through the call, he continues to mention the Bidens. And so this again is about Ukraine. The president did ask Ukraine, the president of Ukraine, a vulnerable leader of a country that is fledgling and trying to survive.
6: There were 12. Fact witnesses who testified during the Intel hearing 12. And we don't hear a thing about those witnesses from my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, a thing. Those witnesses were not political operatives. They were patriots. In fact, they were Trump appointees. Ambassador Taylor, Trump appointee, Ambassador Sondland, Trump appointee. Dr. Fiona Hill, Trump appointee. Jennifer Williams, Trump appointee. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, Trump appointee. Ambassador Volcker, Trump appointee. They all confirmed that Donald Trump pressured a foreign government to target an American citizen for political gain and at the same time withheld, without justification, $391 million in military aid undermining America's national security. Let's just look at Ambassador Volcker's testimony. He testified about the issue of raising the 2016 elections of Vice President Biden, all these things that I consider to be conspiracy theories. What was his response? It was pretty simple. Quote, I think the allegations against Vice President President Biden are self-serving and not credible that's what this is all about but it's a little
3: all right folks the- so now that was this uh one moment that was uh quite interesting it's quite interesting and that is when congressman matt gets uh really one of the truly dumbest members of congress and when i say dumb i mean i'm talking about like dumb dead ass doorknob. doorknob dumb <laughs> is matt gets Uh, And uh, I wanna play for y'all. I'm trying to pull it up here. Uh, uh, So guys, uh, let me, uh, I'm having having some issues here with the uh, iPad connector. Uh, but uh, bring me the other connector, please. Uh, I'm gonna introduce my panel, I'm gonna play this here for y'all. Cause it was just, I mean, first of all, it was just delicious when you had to deal with this, per- deal with this fool. Joining us is Dr. Greg Carr, Chair of Department of Af- Afro-American Studies, Howard University. Pam Keith, a former Florida congressional candidate, Democrat out of uh, Florida, and Dr. Julian Malvo, economist, President Emer- Emerita uh, Bennett College. Uh, all right, let me see if I can go ahead and get this thing working. Cause See, what y'all gotta understand is these folks gonna lie as best they can for Donald Trump. I mean, when I say lie, I mean, they, they just gonna make up stuff. And then they love trashing everybody else. I mean, resolve- trashing everybody else, but it's not working. Bring me another connector, please. Uh, now the one over here. Uh, so they, they love trashing everybody else, but they can't handle the fact that we have a thug in the White House. Let me say this again. We have a thug in the White House. Donald Trump is a thug. Donald Trump will say and do whatever in order to win. Let's just be real clear with that. It doesn't matter. See, when you talk about where we stand in this country uh, in terms of how do you hold this man accountable, um, you have to impeach him, because otherwise he will do worse. And let me tell you something, even after they impeach him, he gonna do something else illegal which means they might have to impeach him again. (laughs) Again. That's Donald Trump. And so his supporters can sit here and they can say, oh, oh, no, well, you know, this is not right and it's fair. But the reality is these people do not care. There's nothing called a norm or a boundary. Nothing for them This is simple. You do whatever you can. You get away with it, which is what he did when he ran his real estate company, which is what he did when he lied on his forms when it came to get in the casino in New Jersey. It's what he has done when he has lied about his golf courses uh, in Ireland and golf courses here, how he's maintained two separate books. ProPublica has broken those things out. This is a man who has lied repeatedly. That's Donald Trump. But, again, when you have these really dumb members of Congress, and Pam was from Florida, and this is embarrassing, because, see, here's the problem for me. I'm from don't Texas, and the wow. second dumbest he member just, of Congress is Congressman right. Louis Gomer of Texas as well. Yeah, but, y'all, here's this fool Matt gets. I mean, just dumbass. Watch this. And I don't want
6: to make light of anybody's... Substance abuse issues. I know the president's working real hard to solve those throughout the country, but it's a little hard to believe that Barisma hired Hunter Biden to resolve their international disputes when he could not resolve his own dispute with Hertz Rental Car over leaving, leaving cocaine and a crack pipe in the car. Again, not saying. You know, not casting any judgment on any challenges someone goes through in their personal life, but it is just hard to believe that this was the guy wandering through homeless encampments buying crack that was worth $86,000 a month to Burisma Holding.
7: I would say that uh, the pot calling the kettle black is not something that we should do. I don't know... I don't know what members, if any have had any problems with substance abuse, been busted in uh, DUI, uh, I don't know. But if I did, I wouldn't raise it uh, against uh, anyone on this committee. I don't think it's proper.
3: Y'all know, um, B- Matt Gitts, uh got busted before. He ran for office for DUI uh, multiple times, and so that's really what you have here. But you know what, I, I did want to go back in ter- terms of the archives, because when you talk about, um, you heard Congresswoman Val Demings there uh, talk about uh, this important deal, but, but I really think when you, because when also here's the other piece. These are the same people who love waving the Constitution like they love waving the flag. And they always talk about the Constitution and the framers and the original intent and all of those different things. And it was Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, on July 25th, 1974, during the Watergate hearings, the first black woman elected to Congress from the South since Reconstruction, who really broke down clearly um, the importance of a president following the Constitution. And This is what she had to say.
8: recognize the gentlelady from Texas, Ms. Jordan, for the purpose of general debate, not to exceed a period of 15 minutes.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I join my colleague, Mr. Rangel, in thanking you for giving the junior members of this committee the glorious opportunity of sharing the pain of this inquiry. Mr. Chairman, you are a strong man, and it has not been easy, but we have tried as best we can to give you uh, as much assistance as possible. Earlier today, We heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Today, I am an inquisitor. And hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Who can so properly be the inquisitors for the nation as the representatives of the nation themselves? The subjects of its jurisdiction are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men. And that's what we're talking about. In other words, From the abuse or violation of some public trust. It is wrong, I suggest, it is a misreading of the Constitution for any member here to assert that for a member to vote for an article of impeachment means that that member must be convinced that the president should be removed from office. The Constitution doesn't say that. The powers relating to impeachment are an essential check in the hands of the body, the legislature, against and upon the encroachments of the executive. The division between the two branches of the legislature, the House and the Senate, assigning to the one the right to accuse and to the other the right to judge. The framers of this constitution were very astute. They did not make the accusers and the judges and the judges the same person. We know the nature of impeachment, We've been talking about it a while now. It is chiefly designed for the president and his high ministers to somehow be called into account. It is designed to bridle the executive if he engages in excesses. It is designed as a method of national inquest into the conduct of public men. The framers confided in the Congress The power, if need be, to remove the president in order to strike a delicate balance between a president swollen with power and grown tyrannical and preservation of the independence of the executive. The nature of impeachment, a narrowly channeled exception to the separation of powers maxim, the Federal Convention of 1787 said that. It limited impeachment to high crimes and misdemeanors and discounted and opposed the term maladministration. It is to be used only for great misdemeanors, so it was said in the North Carolina Ratification Convention. And in the Virginia Ratification Convention, we do not trust our liberty to a particular branch. We need one branch to check the other. No one need be afraid, the North Carolina Ratification Convention, no one need be afraid that officers who commit oppression will pass with immunity. Prosecutions of impeachments will seldom fail to agitate the passions of the whole community, said Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, number 65. We divide into parties more or less friendly or inimical to the accused. I do not mean political parties in that sense. The drawing of political lines goes to the motivation behind impeachment, but impeachment must proceed within the confines of the constitutional term high crime and misdemeanors. Of the impeachment process, it was Woodrow Wilson who said that nothing short of the grossest offenses against the plain law of the land will suffice to give them speed and effectiveness. Indignation so great as to overgrow party interest may secure a conviction, but nothing else can. Common sense would be revolted if we engaged upon this process for petty reasons. Congress has a lot to do appropriations tax reform health insurance campaign finance reform housing environmental protection energy sufficiency mass transportation pettiness cannot be allowed to stand in the face of such overwhelming problems so today we're not being petty we're trying to be big because the task we have before us is a big one
3: Greg. If I was a Democrat, I would have played that instead of me speaking.
2: Roland, first of all, thank you for showing that, brother. Mm-hmm. That's the lesson for all of us. Mm-hmm. Second of all, last night, a- as we heard Barbara Jordan and you know us being Southerners, it's funny how these Negroes from the South somehow acquire this eloquent speech that transcends their dialect from home. Mm-hmm. Sheila Jackson Lee channeled Barbara Jordan last night mm mm-hmm. didn't she? Val Demons channeled it last night. Cedric Richmond channeled last night. Even Hakeem Jeffries found his voice somewhere in the middle of today. But last night, it was the Congressional Black Caucus that channeled Barbara Jordan. But I thought it was interesting, because you know, having seen that many times, having read Barbara Jordan's words, you know, it occurred to me in that moment, that's beyond eloquence, that's an aspiration. But I don't think, I just again, I don't think that had we been included, Had Native Americans, people of African descent, and women of all backgrounds been included at the beginning of this settler project we call the United States, I don't think that we would be here today with this possibility to perfect it. Why? Because it required white elite men thinking they were talking to no one other than each other to be comfortable enough to try to aspire to something that transcended. Now, why do I say that's important in 2019? As we go through Barbara Jordan, 20 years later to Bill Clinton, 25 years later to where we are now, We are in a moment now where these white men have decided that they're going to choose their whiteness over this national experiment. Mm -hmm. And what we've been witnessing today and yesterday is that the Democratic Party and the Judicial Committee, but especially the Congressional Black Caucus, and and a week ago to this day, Hank, Hank, you know, Brother Johnson was sitting right there, right here on this set. They have drawn a line that Gohmert and Jordan and this fool Getz and all them have decided, we know this is a lie but we choose our whiteness over the principles that Barbara Jordan laid out, and we are are willing to let this whole thing collapse before we will let this whiteness Mm -hmm. go. And that's what's really on trial
3: today. And, Pam, that is the thing that I have laid out to people, that what the Republican Party is doing, they see... They're standing on a railroad track, and they see that train coming. (laughs) And it's moving fast. And this, when you look at the fact that the Senate <coughs> today confirmed a man who his own colleagues called lazy, mm. called inept to the federal bench for life, they want to maintain this power.
10: Mm-hmm.
3: They, they know that Donald Trump is their last shot. That's what's really going on here. Mm-hmm. If their deal is, look, they can say whatever they want, they privately. And I've heard what they said privately about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. But what they're really saying is, look, he is the best shot we got mm-hmm. to maintain a largely white federal bench. Ninety percent of... 88 percent of his federal appointments have been white men. Mm-hmm. Only one black... I don't think any of them black. A uh, very few women that's their goal absolutely
10: absolutely
11: but you also got to think about (coughs) it you know just the real the reality of the demographics and i want to break it down to you in this very simple way i am a gen xer and you know that there are people a little bit older than me are baby boomers right Um, but as we sit here today baby boomers trend six points more democratic than republican gen xers trend 11 points more democratic than republican millennials trend 16 points more Democratic than Republican. And of course, Gen Z, those people are just now (laughs) turning 18, haven't actually been measured statistically. But it's but probably 20 plus. 20 plus, <laughs> right. So so what's happening is that the, I think the GOP is coming to, to an understanding that they just don't have ideas that are going to appeal going into the future. And because they don't have ideas that appeal, they're not going to win elections. They're not going to win elections, then they're going to lose the control and the power. And that is power over taxation, that's power over the judiciary. So there's really, there's, there's a, a nexus that's being created between the absence absolute greed of those who have been in power and who have great wealth and don't want to see that lose, and white supremacy, that notion that the power has to be maintained. This is this was always supposed to be a white country, and we are nice enough, when you shame us bad enough, to hand out rights to the other people as we see fit, when we feel comfortable about it. And the dynamic that has shifted, especially with the drive of young people, is to <coughs> wrest from them the notion that they sit on a pile of of rights that they give to others. Rather, they say, uh uh-uh, uh, these rights are ours to begin with, and we're not asking <laughs> you for nothing. That is an entirely new dynamic. Juli- and that's why it's changing so dramatically.
3: Juliana, as Pam was talking, my man Howard Bryant, uh, one of the uh, top sports writers, he literally just tweeted this. Go to my iPad. He said, as long as liberalism supports racial inclusion, conservatives <laughs> will have the advantage until the voting demographics overwhelm them. Look to early 20th century Boston as an example. The Irish finally won the polls, but the Brahmins still control the money. Mm. That is what we're seeing here. Mm. Point blank.
12: Oh, yeah. I mean, we live in a system of predatory capitalism, and these folks have attempted to keep their capitalism and to basically exploit other people. And the fact that they've controlled the judiciary means that any kind of challenges uh to regulation to all these other things will be rebuffed so we've seen under this man uh just basically devastation of the environment epa regulations being turned back we've seen the voter suppression that has often been uh, accepted. We've seen the rollback of the rights of women. We've seen, um, in terms of labor, the rollback in terms of rights of labor. We've seen a redefinition of a number of things. We've seen um, Bessie Devoid, um, devoid of good sense, that is, um, (laughs) basically dealing with the student loan crisis in ways that are deleterious to students, and they basically support the for-profit colleges that are bogus colleges. This is all being buttressed by courts that are unfriendly to the people. And so when you talk about I I think about South Africa sometimes. Mm. The people got the vote, but they didn't get control of the money. You go back to look at Atlanta, when Mayor Jackson was mayor. People got the vote, but they didn't get the money. And that's really where we are now. People, we can vote, but we're not gonna get the money. And because they have the money, they can actually buy the vote. So the Citizens United uh, decision which will not be overturned with this court, is a decision that said, you can buy the vote. So, you know, what we saw today, I was glued to the television (laughs) and and cracking up at some point, because if you elect a clown, expect a circus (laughs) and basically we saw the circus let the sideshow begin um (laughs) (laughs) hurry hurry (laughs) right on (laughs) but you know because these the republicans are determined not to deal with the truth they have not dealt with the facts they have clowned they have overtalked people and and the congressional black caucus has been on top of their game every single one of them Mm -hmm. Uh, sheila jackson lee Mm -hmm. as you said channeling barbara jordan uh val demings doing her thing. Hank Johnson, who tends not to be the most fiery person in the world, right. coming down, coming down hard. Um, it has been amazing to watch. We are the conscious of America, which is what Elijah Cummings said time and time, time and time again. again. He said, again. we are better than this, but are we better than this? No. We look at these people <laughs> who basically have gone to bed with lies. So, you we remember, what's her full name? Uh, Kellyanne John Conway, Conway, talking about <coughs> alternate facts. And this is just the manifestation of alternate facts. Yeah. You know, we see, you know, it's like you telling me that fat meat fat meat ain't greasy, <laughs> you know? And, and while the, the, the grease is sitting around your mouth. <laughs>
10: right.
12: You know, this is what we have going on. These people are sitting there lying and It's okay. Right. And every single one of them is lying because they want to maintain power, not because they want to maintain integrity.
3: Uh, It was very interesting as I was looking at, um, again, listening to Barbara Jordan uh, when she talked about uh, maladministration. So then I come across this uh, tweet from Bernice King uh, when she uh, tweeted uh, her father talking about being maladjusted. Uh, Henry, go to my iPad.
12: Oh, yeah
7: used more than any other word in psychology, it is the word maladjusted. It is the ringing cry of modern child psychology, maladjusted. Now of course we all want to live the well adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. But as I move toward my conclusion, I would like to say to you today in a very honest manner, that there are some things in our society and some things in our world for which I am proud to be maladjusted. And I call upon all men of goodwill to be maladjusted to these things until the good society is realized. I must honestly say to you that I never intend to adjust myself to racial segregation and discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few and leave millions of God's children smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society.
3: What we have seen, and the reason that that is so important is because... What Republicans today want us to do is to accept this Trump BS as normal mm-hmm. and the reason the media plays a huge role in this mm-hmm. is that there are members of the media and y'all know who y'all are even on liberal networks who let that man come on your air on the rate on the phone knowing full will your standards where you had to go to a studio mm-hmm. they played games with the American people when that man lied coming out of the gate for two and a half years, for three years, they wouldn't even use the word lie right. every time he lied. That's right. I remember calling him a liar on ABC this week. You'd only one. And at the time, all these folks on PBS and I remember Judy Woodruff and uh, Jake Tapp over on CNN and all the rest of them were sitting around here, well, we really can't use the word lie because in order for us to understand if somebody's lying, we must know what their purpose was before they say it. The man was straight lying.
12: Straight <laughs> up lying. <laughs> right.
3: Medi- n- national media played games. National media allowed this man while running to hold a news conference where he was supposed to apologize for his birth comment. <laughs> And he led all these generals and these Medal of Honor winners up there endorsing him. And then when he finally comes to the mic, he basically uh, speaks for 20 seconds and walked off. And I'm like, why in the hell y'all showing it? And so the the reality is, part of this problem, so when he's... And not only that, uh, Chris Wallace also uh, said this just today, uh, that, that there has been no one else who has targeted the media in... The way uh, Donald Trump has, because it is by design, if you are able to nullify media speaking truthfully, then you can you can say anything ever reported is a lie, and your art and followers will follow you, and that's what they want us to get adjusted to, and that's why we cannot fall for that
2: okey-doke. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace and Juan Williams are catching a little bit of hell at Fox News because, of course, Fox News is the commercial media's outpe- uh, open white supremacist network. And, you know, even even questioning a little bit this white supremacist framework, has, they're receiving this, this invective. Now, you watch Morning Joe any morning, and glance at it, and you see these white people unable to say whiteness and you know my dear friend and colleague Eddie Glaud sitting there and I'm looking at him like you in a hot situation brother because I know you like coming on here but you to stay on here you can't call a spade a spade this morning they talking about you know, it's this whole thing where the elites are avert. say what it is man because guess what Louis Gohmert and Doug Collins and, 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 and Jim Jordan they have dropped all pretenses yeah. they're not trying to speak to us mm-hmm. they are talking to their hillbilly clay-eaten, no nothing crowd, <laughs> and as you have said, they have hijacked the federal judiciary. The 50th member, as you said, just got appointed to the federal bench to the circuit court. They've replaced one-fifth of the federal judiciary, including two stolen Supreme Court seats. As you said, they are playing the long game now. Yeah. They are not talking to us. And so I guess the last thing I would say is that this project has the very real possibility now of disintegrating. Yes. Because, and I'm not talking about the whole country. I'm talking because in Atlanta or in Illinois, where this city just said, you know, we're gonna deal with this reparations issue. It's going to now revert to the local areas where yeah. this fight is gonna take place. But in terms of a national experiment, this white mass media that would not say that he's lying, as you did on TV One or you did anytime you were on ABC, and it took him years to catch up. I think probably uh, Lawrence O'Donnell was probably the first one to follow your lead because he too believes in this experiment. They now have normalized this thing so more difficult that now Trump is attacking them. Right. When he jumps on this young uh, Greta Thornburg, mm-hmm. when his wife, who is a purebred joke, whose papers were not uh, legal, exactly, Birther. says, you can't talk about my son, who may even share a condition with Greta a little bit on term, in terms of being on this spectrum. And then Maxine Waters said, yeah, we should take children out of this. When are you going to talk to your husband? On that, now now they're scared. Now they're scared of M- MSNBC. Now they're scared at CNN. Now Chris Watson and them and Ryan Williams look scared on Fox. But they will not speak truth to power, and that's going to ultimately be the barometer of whether or not this experiment succeeds or not, because people have tuned out, people they don't agree with. They're just talking to people they want to believe Pam, in. this was yeah. the
3: quote from Chris Wallace. I believe President Trump... Is engaged in the most direct, sustained assault on freedom of the press in our history. Yes. He said the president's attacks have done some damage. Now, uh, because a Freedom Forum Institute poll this year found 29% of Americans think the First Amendment goes too far, <laughs> 77% say fake news is a serious threat to our democracy. Well, that is. Now, Here's the other thing. Uh, there's an election happening, right, uh, The first of all, uh, hap- that, that is taking place today in the U.K. Based upon the, um, uh, the projections right now, the conservatives are likely going to maintain the majority. This is what Ezra Klein of Vox uh, tweeted uh, about uh, an hour ago. Go to my iPad. He said, I'm not going to pretend to be enough of a U.K. politics expert to draw granular conclusions here. But if Tories can win after the hell they put the country through, Trump and Republicans can win despite the corruption and incompetence of the past three years. Now, let me pick, among. I want you to speak to this because I want to pick up a point that Greg just said. When he talked about when you watch Morning Joe, uh-huh. when you talk about when you watch CNN's New Day, when you watch these, they're th- the Jim Jordans of the world mm-hmm. are speaking to these white rural folks. Mm-hmm but these white progressives yes. mm-hmm. and also these white conservatives mm-hmm. are, speak- and also are speaking to these white independents who are saying, yeah, sure, Trump has said these things, but guess what? Your 401K is doing great.
10: Mm-hmm.
3: And yeah. so what's going to be an argument that they're going to make, and in fact, I saw it on one of the front pages yesterday when I was at the New Zealand, which is closing uh, at the end of the year, was one of the front pages and they essentially said uh, it was a quote from one of these Republicans, How could you even impeach somebody when the, when the economy is just mm-hmm. going right. so well right? We need to understand that yes. the white folks Greg's talk Greg talking about they will overlook the lies right and well, all of this because it's about their pocketbook that's
11: right it is, well, first of all, I, I will take issue and say that I, I don't. I spend a lot of time with progressives. I don't know a whole lot of white progressives that are talking about 401Ks, but I was, No, no, no.
3: The white progressives, see, see right here. The white progressives who you got to be scared of are the, are, the, are the Silicon Valley folks. I wouldn't the call them Gays. progressives. No, 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 no. Yes, they are. Yes, they are, because here's the piece. Here's the piece. White progressives are progressives on some issues until you get to their money.
11: I, 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 mm. I, I, I want to put a pin in that, Roland, because I want to come back to something that you said no, I think is really important. I want the audience to understand why it is that Trump wanted Ukraine to say something negative about Joe Biden. Mm. I want you to understand that because.
3: But also, before you do that, also explain to people your military background so right. you can understand that. So, so I that was, just some Democrat talking.
11: No, mm. I, I was a former naval officer and I did have a top secret clearance. I know a little bit about what the situation is. Mm-hmm. But you know and I know that Joe Biden has been in politics for 40 years. And if the GOP had the goods on him, Mm-hmm. they would have told us that of by now, right? <laughs> and it's not like they lack resources to do oppo research, right? They have all of the machinery available to them to find the dirt on Joe Biden. So, because they couldn't find any, they extorted a foreign country to create it. Mm-hmm. And you understand that in our politics, If the Republicans just said Joe Biden's a bad guy because blah blah blah, people wouldn't believe it. But if a foreign country said, we're investigating Joe Biden for blah blah blah, then that creates a fog of suspicion. And on the right... Which is what we're talking about, a fog is all it takes. All it takes is a whiff of suspicion, a thin as puddle body of evidence, Is oh well, there must be something wrong. And I want you to think back to the record they have here. When you start from Birthergate and you work your way through Benghazi, through the DNC server, through Fast and Furious, Uranium One, Mass Voter Fraud, every single one of these conspiracies has been raised by the right, and they are oh for every conspiracy they've ever come up with. <laughs> but zero indictments and zero convictions but, on any.
3: But, but, to your point, the point of it is to create the fog. Mm-hmm. Create and, the fog. And so, and what we must gird ourselves for, going to the 2020, there. if you think you've seen this massive disinformation campaign up until now, mm. they're about to take this thing to Something a whole other the level, yeah. and black people are going to be targeted again. Of course. Because... They are afraid of our turnout.
11: But you know how they succeed at that? As they take legitimate thieves They took take legitimate gripes oh, yeah. and they heighten them to discourage us from voting. It's true that there are Democrats to blame for the plight of black people, just like there are Republicans to blame absolutely. for the plight of black people. That is absolutely true. But what happens is they 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 they, they package this as, and the answer for you is to stay home and not right. vote. Don't trust anybody right. mm-hmm. because what they want you to do is to self regulate out of exercising your power. People died to give us the right to vote, right? So why would we ever hand over that power? Why would we ever not exercise that power to empower the people who most want to harm the black
3: community? Mm-hmm.
11: Yep.
3: Final thoughts um, on this topic.
12: You know, um, Pam is right about the, the smoke. And we've been seeing the disinformation campaign, starting with little Miss Kellyanne Conway talking about alternate facts. Um, what we're going to see, as you say, going into 2020, um, and I'm glad you, you as a millennial raised a question about voting, because there were well, so many... Said she said she's Gen X. I'm general X. Uh, You're Gen X? <laughs> I'm 51. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> but, anyway, but many Gen millennials X. said they wouldn't vote in 2016 because they liked... Um, Bernie. They liked Bernie, and they didn't like Hillary. And so they didn't vote. And that we, we do give our power away. But what we have to do, Roland, and you do a very good job of it, and there's so many others that have to step up and sell, tell folks you must vote. I mean, what we have seen in the past three years is an absolute deterioration of, of rights. Not just black people's rights, but all people's rights. We've seen a deterioration. The fact that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is under attack, and you know that... of all Americans can't do a $400 emergency. Mm -hmm. So you've got um, predatory lending, you've got crazy, uh, extortive interest rates. This doesn't just affect black people. It affects anybody who has an income of less than $50,000. And there's a whole lot of people that are white with that. But these people are voting their whiteness as opposed to their pocketbook. And basically, the so-called white progressives are voting their pocketbook while having progressive rhetoric. Um, they have not sat down with black folks to talk about what it is, you know, that they can do to basically move us to economic justice because they're not about economic justice. They're about predatory profits. So when we sort of break this thing out and unpack it, what we're looking at, frankly, is uh, self-interest, and we're looking at people who are putting their own interests over the Constitution, over human rights. And so, you know, this... it's. I was it's cray-cray. It really, I mean, I, they're better words, they're more eloquent words, but cray-cray is the best word. When you look at what's happening in our country and the way that um, the Constitution, which I love that fact that you ran Barbara Jordan, because she talked about how the Constitution, while flawed, uh, has made many pathways to opportunity. But now what we see is a president who does not believe in the Constitution, he believes in himself. That's what he believes in. You know, he believes in... He's used the United States to feather his nest. He has used this country to give his children jobs and anybody else jobs who... The most unqualified people in the universe, Roland, I don't know where he gets these people from, but these most unqualified people in the universe are basically making major economic decisions.
3: Yeah, but these are the same unqualified people who have gotten jobs over black people for years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so you say where they get them from easily, America. How about that? That's where he gets them from, because they've always been there. And so there's nothing like being a... Weed, there's nothing like having the confidence of a mediocre white man in America. No question.
12: Oh, there you, ha- there you have it.
3: All right, folks, speaking of mediocre white men, in a recent article for 538, my <laughs> next guest contends that college football doesn't give black coaches many chances. For example, black coaches still make up a small share of Division I college football <laughs> Uh, coaches based on this graphic that measures growth since 1975 look at this graphic here folks uh if that was wall street some folks would be throwing up <laughs> uh, and the power <laughs> five coaches are still overwhelmingly white josh so uh the writers josh planos so is going to be joining us in just a moment but this is the thing that was, was very interesting because uh greg i'll go to you it was interesting when you talk about uh these these coaches and, and somebody watching they may say Look, why why is this really a big deal? Because Mm. here's the thing. And again, I'm going to go back to Howard Bryant. He also has done this example as well. He's laid out how many black coaches in the NBA have gotten head coaching jobs but never played. Mm. And it, it, it it is stunning. You find very few African Americans who have become NBA head coaches who never played. But then he compared it to the number of black former players who became head coaches. And what it essentially says is that, if you're a black, the, uh, and in Major League Baseball, the same oh, thing. no question. He lays this out. That the gateway to becoming a coach in these sports, if you're black, is you had to play the sport. Mm-hmm.
10: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
3: But if you're white, yeah. you didn't have to. No. And so, what we're seeing, we're seeing when it comes to these colleges, Same thing, these presidents and athletic directors hiring coaches, quote, who they're familiar with, the relationships. We see the exact same thing happening in the NFL. Same thing, front offices, who do I know familiar with? How does an Adam Gase suck in the Miami Dolphins and then gets fired in Miami, but then gets a new head coaching job in New York where he is sucking at the New York Jets. (laughs) You, you, you will not see a black head coach who absolutely sucks in one team and then in the next year get fired and get immediately <laughs> hired by another team. And so, uh, Josh Planos, so you get a great breakdown. He joins us right now on the phone. A great breakdown of what's happening in these colleges. And when people say it's not a big deal, not until you start looking at Harbaugh. Harbaugh and Sabin. And uh, and uh, Dabo Sweeney and these coaches who are now making uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine million dollars a year.
8: Josh, you there? Yep. Thank you so much for having me. All right. You're absolutely right. I think sports is a, a reflection of our society, and uh, unfortunately, for as long as there's been college athletics, there have been a, a huge disparity between um you know those who have positions of power and those who don't and uh as i tried to lay out in the the article uh it's pretty easy to find uh, that along racial lines
3: and of course at 538 you break these things by numbers uh and no one can dispute this reality and you hear all of these excuses by these administrators but this is really not about performance on the field it's really not about recruiting what college athletics and what football is all about is how do you please white donors?
10: Mm
8: -hmm. Agreed. I mean, really, the whole structure is white. Uh, I mentioned in the piece that we haven't, I guess it'll take effect uh, in early January, we've literally never had a non-white Power Five commissioner. These are the conferences that cash the biggest checks. Um, All of these people are are non-black, Uh, The athletic directors are largely non-black the coaches themselves are largely non-black The only time you find a black majority seems to be when you trickle down to the players who are actually Mm -hmm. giving up their bodies To produce uh, the product on the field that is actually raking in uh, Millions and millions of dollars the NCAA is a billion-dollar industry Um, But uh, unfortunately, it seems like it's a lot of the same people making uh, making the calls
3: Uh, I'll give an example that, that really jumps out at me. Um, and I'm gonna use a media example, and then I'm gonna use a coaching example. Um, Jeff Zucker becomes the executive producer of the Today Show at 25. Uh, Mark Shapiro becomes his major executive at ESPN in, in his 20s. Uh, I, I, I can name any number of white media executives who were 30 and 31 Uh, who became EVPs and top executives and and took over. Uh, I look at Lane Kiffin, who was just hired (laughs) at Ole Miss as the head coach, who is 44 years old and already has his fifth Mm -hmm. major coaching position. Mm -hmm. Fifth. A guy who became the uh, head coach of the Oakland Raiders in his early 30s gets fired because the head coach at... Tennessee, Uh, Tennessee. then leaves Tennessee Mm -hmm. to go to USC. Yes. And then after gets fired at USC, goes on the staff of Alabama under uh, Nick Saban, Mm -hmm. gets hired at Florida Atlantic University, now just got hired by Ole Miss. (laughs) I look at, so I look at Kendall Bryles, the son of Art Bryles, who is 37 years old. And folks just talked about how he is just this amazing um, offensive mind. I look at the guy who just got hired as the head coach, uh, uh, Mike Norville at Florida State where they fired Willie Taggart. I think about um, the son, uh, I believe it's the, um, the guy used to be with the Patriots, excuse me, used to be head coach at Notre Dame. Uh, I'm, ho- I'm going to get his name in a second. His son as well. Here's what I'm saying. I can't show you a single example of a black whiz kid Mm. Uh, and I'm just saying, even, like, so I'm using, I use media as well, because the point is, we don't get to be able to show our wizardry at 23 and 24 and 25. We gotta go to these really small places, and that, Josh, speaks to this system that elevates young white talent quickly and doesn't do it for black folks.
8: Absolutely. And when the industry is not operating like a turnstile, which it so often is, because for an athletic director, it's a lot easier to sell to your fan base that, you know, here's, you know, ex-coach who's coming in with, you know, decades of experience than it is to say, we're going to take a shot with this guy um, who maybe is unproven. um, Because of that, and the off chance that you do take a chance, you're largely pulling from offensive and defensive coordinators, which uh, black candidates are seldom elevated to. I, I mentioned in the piece, since 1975, I can only find seven instances of an African American head coach being fired and then receiving a second opportunity as a head coach. So even once you get the position, just having that anvil hanging over your head, knowing that if this if this product does not turn out to be successful, there goes my chance, um, m- must be crippling, frankly, to to sit in the coach's booth.
3: Um, under those circumstances. Well, and that's exactly it. And, and what I was thinking, um, what I was thinking of, uh, it was, he was the uh, the son of Charlie Wise. Oh, right, yeah. uh, who, who got hired uh, at Florida Atlantic. And again, this thing is crazy, Josh. Charlie Wise Jr. was 24 years old mm-hmm. and became the offensive coordinator at Florida Atlantic University. What, because Charlie Wise is your dad? I mean, but again, though, I, I, I can't think of any, um, any black, uh, 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 black coach at 24 or 27 or 28 or 30 who becomes an offensive coordinator at a major program.
8: That's the- I mean, even in the NFL, that's, that's true. I mean, you saw Sean McVay. Uh, you know, obviously, he was super successful in, in getting the Rams to the Super Bowl last year. But, you know, name anybody else. Uh, but a white guy who's going to get that opportunity at such a young age, uh, which I I mentioned in the piece is what was so surprising about Willie Taggart. And unfortunately, um, you know, he didn't even get two years uh, to prove his value to Florida State. But uh, what's so exceptional about Willie Taggart is at 43. He had already landed some of the most coveted positions in all of the NCAA. Right. I mean, he had been elevated to head coach at Oregon and Florida State. These are high profile jobs. And uh, unfortunately, even with you know his experience that, that that's so such an outlier if you look at historically um you know hiring practices along racial lines
3: well same with kevin sumlin i mean head coach of university of houston, officer coordinator uh at oklahoma head coach of university of houston head coach of texas a m now in arizona and so to be a head coach at three is stunning and then you have people in arizona who were yelling for him to get fired this year and i'm like y'all suck before he got there but again, that's the reality of when you talk. But, when you, but you don't hear the people yelling, uh, "Fire Chip Kelly at UCLA!" Uh, even and so then not only that, you got Scott Frost, who they still suck at Nebraska. And guess
8: what? I think he got an extension. Right. Wow. Hmm. It's amazing how he did. That's a, actually yeah. Go ahead. That's right in my backyard. Uh, you know, uh, I can tell you that uh, you know folks in Lincoln are none too pleased, and yet it was enough to convince uh, the athletic director. Uh, you know, senior officials within the program to to give this guy a two-year extension. It wasn't mm-hmm. even as though next year was his final season. They just added on uh, additional seasons, even though Nebraska is—I I, don't—I don't know by any metric you could call them um, an, an even average program at this point. Absolutely. And uh, this guy was the prodigal son, so he's going to get a longer runway. And unfortunately, uh, that—that's the current climate we live in.
3: Josh those. with five thirty-eight, we
8: appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so
3: much for having me. Julian, I want to go to you. You've served as a college president. Uh, The reality is, at these major programs, I would dare say at an HBCU, uh, the comparison to the major football program probably would be, how well does the band perform? And so, (laughs) and so the level of pressure that's applied by big funded boosters. At these major football programs, these are largely white boosters. They're the ones who are dropping the millions of dollars They're the ones who want their asses kissed and their rings kissed. And that's really, when you look at some of these people, it's not even really how you do on the field. In fact, the Arkansas, even though uh, Chad Morris, he's white, he got fired at Arkansas because essentially they said, well, he really was, he was sort of boring off the field because Mm -hmm. it's about slapping those backs of those alumni. And guess what? They don't look like this panel. Mm
12: -hmm. You know, that, uh, (laughs) Roland, the whole issue of the economics of sport especially in these big five and other universities, is really kind of reprehensible. Harry Edwards used to talk about black uh, <clears throat> sports, sports professionals as uh, gladiators, you know, likening them to, in the, in the Roman days, the gladiators who went out and fought but did not get any return on what they were doing. And this is what we're seeing now. But beyond that, the structure, as the young man said about... Um, flip, it's the same structure we see... In, in corporate America, uh, how in any rational mind would Ivanka Trump and Josh be in the White House being senior advisor? They don't know, you know, what is it, what we say, shit from Shinola. Right. You know, but they're senior advisors to the president. And when you look at some of those appointees, this is all personal relationships. It's not about qualifications. So these black coaches don't get second chances because basically they took a chance on them the first time. They don't get a second bite at the apple. Right. And the, the unfairness is just built into our system. And, you know, with a sports thing, it's even worse because these young men and women, the young brothers, uh, young sisters who are playing they're not capitalizing on their numbers or anything else. This is why people are talking about paying these these right. athletes because they're not being able to capitalize on anything. But, you know, when you see black folks on the field and white folks as coaches, you know there's something wrong.
11: Right. And I think, I think Julianne's point is so correct because in every facet of America, what we see is people who aren't, who claim they're not racist, they're not sexist, <laughs> but they can only deal with black people or right. deal with women when they're in subordinate positions. Yes. Right. The only dynamic that they're comfortable with is a superior subordinate relationship. That's and right. the minute that that, end of, that black person or that woman or that young person asserts themselves and says, hey, no, look at what I can do, then they're not viewed as being dynamic and the new whippersnapper, the new hot thing. They're viewed as the threat. You know, and I think to some extent we see this even translating into our politics, where you know people are asking why why is Pete Buttigieg doing so badly in the black community? <laughs> right? and, I, and I think part of it is how many black people know that they know a brilliant, dynamic, intelligent, capable black person who would never ever be considered remotely viable right. for president of the United States at 34. I mean. People didn't think that, that Andrew Gillum should be the governor of Florida at that age, right? You know, so I think that, you know, we can say, yeah, Pete, Pete has a great resume. He he appeals to a certain number of people. But I think everybody understands when he steps up and says, I think I can be president of the United States. He's making a statement about this country, too, which is that only he could step up a 34 and no. say, hey, I should be president of the United States. And I think that that is reflected, as we say, in college and everywhere else. If when I, as a black woman, stepped up and said, I think I should be a United States senator, what I was told is, that's not your lane. Mm -hmm. That's not your lane. It's not for you. Greg, what we're dealing with here,
3: Greg, this this is the only way this changes. It's the only way it changes. The only way this changes is when the black labor force rises up. Agreed. That's it. So, at the end of the day, until you have until you have the parents <clears throat> of four- and five-star players Same. publicly say, where are your black offensive of coordinators? Where are your black defensive coordinators? Don't just sit, Because, see, y'all, I, I look, I'm wearing my Texas a I've worked for the lead department at texas AM. i A&M. Hmm. I'm telling you, at nearly every major program in America, do you know who the hottest recruiters are? It's typically a black coach who's either a running
2: backs coach of or a wide receivers coach. That's right, that's right. Well, Ron, it's interesting you say that, brother. Um, this is a plantation yes. model. Sports, as you say, no different than corporate America, no question in politics. It's all a corporate. And, and, and when I say a plantation model, I mean we have to study the plantation as a complex. It's very important to understand that black labor is being exploited, but also black intellect. My brother-in-law, Randy Fuller, who played for several teams in the NFL over about seven or eight years, including the pre-Tomlin Pittsburgh Steelers. He went to Tennessee State, my alma mater, where you just spoke. So HBCU, in that transition from desegregation to... Uh, from segregation to desegregation, these white professional coaches would spend the summers with men like Joe Gillum Sr., who was his mentor at Tennessee State, yep. or uh, Archie Cooley at Mississippi Valley, who coached Jerry Rice. And Eddie pick, Robinson. Yes, J- Eddie Robinson and Graham. They would pick their brains... And then they would take that intellectual capital back to the league, but they would never hire these brothers. Right. Oh. So so now what you see, what you've described at AM and all these plantation schools, I don't watch professional football known as college football for this very reason. You see those brothers on the sidelines because without those brothers, they don't get those blue chip recruits. But you see Nick Saban stealing money from one of the poorest states in the country by the millions because they can count in a plantation economy on not just exploiting labor, but exploiting intellect. Finally, I'll say this. When we look at the women, you look at adon Staley, for example, an all-world everything coming out of Dobbins High in North Philly who coached at Temple, who then coached at Virginia, who's now at South Carolina. You see in the women's basketball arena perhaps a willingness to have more black women coaching but as you said if you're gonna coach that means you had to play right so the last thing i will say is that i think this changes when we go back to our black institutions because i know as an academic at howard we cannot compete with georgetown we cannot compete with maryland and i'm talking about as academics because that athletic budget right allows those schools to then subsidize research for academics so i have we we all know people and, and i know you know doctor who would have loved to have been a with you but UNC gives them a travel grant, and they can go around the world. And that's because those black bodies are playing basketball down there on Tobacco Road, and it translates into them then siphoning all of our intellectual capital. I think we have to turn from these plantation schools <coughs> and go to our schools. And once we go to our schools, we can then begin to renegotiate this whole thing. And that's what scared the hell out of NC2A about that Rich Paul situation. Because, see, LeBron and boys was like, we're going to control our labor now on the agent side. And it shook them so bad <coughs> that they backed up off trying to right. break Rich Paul because they realized if they right. ever take that, if you ever start sending these... Uh, Try, I should, trying to yeah.
3: require agents to have a college degree. See,
2: that's what I'm saying. And see, and in fact, I, I didn't want... No, it was all because of Rich Paul. Brother, I know you speak to a lot of HBCU graduations. When you talk to young people, this is what I tell young, young, young people in particular. I'm not talking about college students. I'm talking about elementary school age students and middle school age. I said, all y'all want to go play basketball, all y'all want to go play football, listen, somebody in here need to be the agent. And if you're the agent, when your boy gets ready to sign a deal, your girl gets ready to sign a deal, you get 5%. This man, well, what's up uh, Boris, Scott Boris, this oh, yeah. week alone, Control, this man has made all... almost $50 million oh, just off of three be, signings. Yes. I'm telling these young cats sis, That's your boyfriend? No problem. Let him go to the league. You go to law school. Let's it's break true. this thing wide
3: open. Well, in fact, there's a sister <laughs> who I follow. Uh, she's a black female sports agent. And after uh, Boris negotiated the Garrett Cole deal yes. with Yankees, she said, because uh, she does NFL, she said... Uh, I'm about the size of baseball players because that's oh, that's, that's right. the piece.
2: Oh, let me say this right quick. Howard Bryant, since we can maybe... this one. When Howard Bryant said about a month ago that Major League Baseball is the greatest exploiter of immigrant labor, all this Ooh, black labor yes. from the Caribbean, a third of Major League Baseball is black. But none of the front offices are black. The coaches are a little bit black. But Howard is making the point, and his sister is making the point, Major League <laughs> Baseball... That these Latino brothers from the DR and Puerto Rico and Venezuela and all these places, y'all go get y'all some black agents and stop talking about this black and Latino uh, business as if we different people.
3: Yo, know, that's why that's why I always say, if you want to be in the NBA, you can be in the NBA, but you ain't got to bounce the ball. No question. You, mm. could, you could be, see, and that's the piece. That's the GM at the which, rap. Which, which, right. which is why, which is why, and one of the things that we do, which is why I, I interview these folks, is because we want to show who these folks are, so somebody can say, oh, I didn't realize they even existed. Mm. All right, folks, got to go to break. we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Marcus Garvey and his Universal Negro Improvement Association as part of our uh, 1619-2019 segment. Back on Roland Martin Unfiltered in a moment. You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered like share subscribe to our youtube channel that's youtube.com forward slash roland s martin and don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live you'll know it. marcus garvey and his organization the universal negro improvement association represents the largest mass movement In African American history, proclaiming a black nationalist back to Africa message, Garvey and the UNIA established 700 branches in 38 states by the early 1920s. While chapters existed in large urban areas such as New York, Chicago, LA, Garvey's message reached into small towns across the country as well. A film documenting his life and the impact he has had is in the works. Check this out. Garvey was able to achieve so much because he was truly a big dreamer.
1: Little black boy from St. Anne, having this vision, not just for himself, but for his
2: entire race. He gave the black community a sense of pride. We were supposed to be savages. We were supposed to be thankful to the British Empire for enlightening us.
1: If you ask people in the village in which I live,
6: does Africa have a history, they'd laugh at you. At one level, I wish Garvey was back here campaigning, saying, look, we have a history, we have a history, we're as good as you. In fact, we were way ahead of you.
7: We go to school and we hear that Africans were slaves brought there. We never get no understanding of Africa before slavery.
4: Marcus Garvey was a critical part of that 20th century search for public democracy, for social justice. As the colonial world was crumbling, Garvey brought uh, intellectual order and organization to the rise of the
7: modern 20th century.
4: He was able to get to the masses, talk to the working masses of black people.
2: And that's why people were attracted to him. When we heard Marcus Garvey and Hope Back to Africa movement, that was a missing link for us, because we just couldn't find a connection at the time as far as our liberty in England as black youths in Britain.
10: Marcus Garvey was the Barack Obama of his day. For many of his followers, there was God and there was Garvey.
7: One God, one aim, one destiny.
5: It's hard for me to see how under the circumstances that were far more difficult in this country and in New York and in my beloved Harlem, How he was able to motivate and bring together so many uh, people of color. And how easy it was for a handful of white folks to bring him down.
3: As part of our continuing series, Still Seeking Freedom, we're talking with the filmmaker of the documentary, Roy Anderson. Roy, how you doing? Very good. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show, Roland. So one of the things that we've often talked about uh, in previous segments of this, uh, Julian has talked about this when it comes to lynching, is that the real threat that Marcus Garvey represented to this country was because he focused on black folks having financial independence. And that Hmm. has always represented the greatest threat Mm -hmm. to white America when black folks start talking about money.
4: Well, he came up here and upset the status quo. You know, it's not only white folks that were um, uh, upset at what he was talking about, but his fellow black Americans as well, too.
3: And why is that? Because from from your research, um, why is that?
4: Well, here it is, I mean, a man uh, from, um, a country boy, as they would say, from Jamaica, um, an immigrant, you know, comes to this country all of a sudden, you know, he's giving these, um, these black folks hope, you know, folks who um, came from the South. Um, you got uh, other immigrants that, are, um, that settled um, in New York. You know, W.B. Du Bois and all those other folks, I mean, they were on the scene, you know, they were preaching their message. But I think um, what Garvey did, he just appealed to that inner, um, inner appeal. Uh, among the black folks, because he just stepped on the scene and said, uh, before it was even popular, black is beautiful. So he coined this term the new Negro. And boy, he shook up a lot of folks there in New York and and the greater America.
3: There's a clip of Dr. King talking about that very issue that folks really don't, don't talk a lot about. But in that clip as well, he talked about how black folks have to write their own uh, Lincolnian, uh, Emancipation Proclamation to, in-in essence, uh, free ourselves.
4: And MLK said that Marcus Garvey, you know, was the first man that gave us Negroes a sense of dignity, made them feel that there was somebody. Mm-hmm.
3: Julianne, question?
12: You know, Marcus Garvey really was a visionary. And the, one of the things that we were most uh, disturbed about when you look at his history is how the FBI was able to bring him down on some bogus nonsense about mail fraud. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the ways that the United States conspired basically to get this black man deported?
4: Well, let me tell you something. I had a conversation with Charlie Rangel and he basically told me that um, when this movie comes out, uh, J. Edgar Hoover is gonna come from his grave because of some of the things we're gonna say. But the fact of the matter is, Hoover, you know, he put out um, uh, uh, missives to his folks that hey, you know, let's try and uh, find out a way that we can deport this man uh, because uh, he's an undesirable alien before mm-hmm. Marcus Garvey even did anything on the scene. So um, what happened was um, they recruited some of the first black uh, FBI agents. Well, it was the mm-hmm. Bureau of Investigation at the time. You know, they infiltrated um, uh, Garvey's organization. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of these folks, they were really close to uh, Marcus Garvey. Um, he, they knew the inner workings and, and secrets of what was going on. And basically, you know, um, they were writing reports every day and reporting back to headquarters about, you know, what Garvey was doing. And it was a perfect storm that brewed that, you know, they them with this and also um, the black folks who started this movement called uh, Marcus Miss Go uh, mm. really brought him down. Pam?
10: Mm-hmm.
11: I'm actually curious about how uh, Dr. Garvey got pride as, as a core component of the way black people needed to change their opinions. They needed to start thinking about themselves with pride, and why was that unique? Why was, why was the first one who did that?
4: Well, let me tell you something. I mean, slavery does something to a person. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, it beats you over the head, even sometimes, you know, harder than a sledgehammer. And basically, what Garvey was able to instill in his fellow black man was this sense of, um, of nationhood, mm-hmm. of self-determination. Um, so he talked about, um, you know, this great black nation going back to Africa. But um, I think it was just not uh, only a, a physical move, but it was also um, a, a inner spiritual move as well, too. Uh, you know, his whole life, his whole life was consumed with this thing called African redemption. In Garvey's lifetime, you know, basically there weren't many um, redemptive narratives um, about the continent of Africa. Uh, there was a land of savages. Later on, um, we come to find out, well, based on what we see on TV, that you know Tarzan really reigned over the jungle with all these natives. <laughs> but
2: Garvey sought to change that. Mm-hmm. Greg, it's good to see you, brother Roy. Um, I'm looking at that poster behind you, and in, in, the first that Queen Nanny documentary you did, one of your er- uh, earlier documentaries, a brilliant piece, brother. And I, I was tempted Thank to you. ask, oh, yes, of course, tempted to ask you about women in the Garvey movement, Amy Jacques, Amy Ashwood Garvey. But you know, since we have a limited time, and you know, Roland started this series in the wake of this New York Times 1619 project, but m- more importantly to say that we're not just gonna talk about America. So I guess my question really is, 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 is asking you, looking at the trailer, anticipating the documentary, Looking at so many africans from outside the united states but understanding that garvey's movement the largest movement in black mass movement in history all, all most of its chapters were here in the united states africans in the united states how do you expand this conversation 16 19 and now still seeking freedom to help our people understand through your work that blackness is not confined to where you're born but it's in fact an international piece. Garvey never set, never set foot on the African continent. We've got this uh, A- American descendants of slavery movement going on now. People saying, "Well, these are immigrants." But uh, how does your documentary help us understand that whether you're from the Caribbean, from Latin America, from Africa, here in the United States, that we are indeed all one people?
4: Well, uh, the, you know, when you
2: define that term, Pan
4: Africanism, mm-hmm. that 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 um, involves the whole of the diaspora, you know, um, whether you're in America, you know, whether you're in the West Indies, the Caribbean, whether you're in Africa, you know, Marcus Garvey's message was global. He wasn't just, you know, he felt that um, he couldn't just um, stay in Jamaica and get that message across. So he came to America during the height of um, Mm -hmm. the Harlem Renaissance. Did what he did in this um, country, and then uh, after he was deported, he went to England because he said, "To really make a difference, you gotta be, um, you gotta go to the motherland, not the physical motherland, but um, England was a colonial empire, so he was able to spread his message." And he had this beautiful uh, piece called "The Negro World," which, during his time, you would have you would be delivering those. Um, Uh, papers at your own peril, because you could be jailed for those in in, in, um, certain countries. But, um, I mean, he influenced uh, so many, uh, I mean, um, in his lifetime. And even more so um, since he passed away in
3: 1940. When can gonna be released?
4: We're hoping by the fall of um, 2020. And we're just hoping for support. This is self-funded. And if you would indulge me, i are just hoping that folks can go to our website www.garveythemovie.com. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're accepting contributions; uh, any you know uh, amount will help. This is self-funded, and this is something <laughs> definitely that Garvey would want.
3: Garveythemovie.com. Thank you. All right, Roy Anderson, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Um, an elementary school assignment has landed a Missouri teacher on administrative leave and as has the NAACP calling for a formal apology. It happened in the elementary school in Melville, Missouri. Students in the fifth grade class were asked to do an assignment setting prices for different things and then reflect on topics such as a free market economy and wealth. The students set prices for 12 different things. And the last item the students were asked to set a price for was quite different from the first. You own a plantation or farm, and therefore need more workers. You begin to get involved in the slave trade industry and have slaves work on your farm. Your product to sl- trade is slaves. At your price for a slave, these could be worth a lot. Well, to our two educators on the panel, what the hell?
12: Well, <laughs> all I got to say, sweet little baby Jesus, that a woman should not be put on administrative leave. Haha, and Parks should be fired. I mean, this is ridiculous. We've seen so many cases rolling in the past couple of years of people diminishing the impact of enslavement. There was one school where they had the black children uh, play like slaves and the white children were the masses. I mean, our nation needs a total re-education, but even more than that, these folks, as insensitive as they are, they should be told, if you do this, you up out of here. And not only are you up out of here, but you will not teach at another school again. It's, just, it's absurd to me that the societal ignorance about mm-hmm. enslavement and the ways that... Yeah, I'm sure this was a young white woman who didn't get <laughs> behind from a hole in the wall. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that.
2: But see, Doc, I would this is a tough one for me. I'll be quite honest with you. And Roland, I think about uh, our, our friend and woman you've had on the airways many times, Jane Elliott. I wonder what she would say about this. And I say that because as a curriculum writer and as a teacher, you know, we understand that in 1861, when the Civil War jumped off in this country, the bodies of black children, women and men, were worth more, just the bodies, just our bodies, were worth more than all the money in the banks yes. and all the real property in this country. So when I read through the lesson, and you say it was the last question, but the questions were like, well, you're in New England and the, and the ground is not good, so you got to sell codfish, or you're a whaler, and you've got to deal, you got to set a price for oil. And so when you come to this, you can't tell the story of the political economy of this country without the wealth that was generated on the backs of black bodies, particularly after 1808 when you see the domestic enslavement. Mm-hmm. Women were basically ATMs. Every baby. That's how Thomas Jefferson got out of debt after he died in Monticello. So I guess I'm reading this lesson and I'm saying this is a great lesson because it's going to be disturbing. In other words, well, I don't want to deal with it. No, no, no. If you don't deal with this, you understand Wall Street. You don't understand predatory lending, that hyper-capitalism you're talking about. So but, i I don't know. But though.
3: what you're laying out, though, that has to be the intent from the outset. That's right. That's right. See, that's part. Of, that's, see, that, that, no, that, right. that to me is part of the issue when these come up. So it has to be how you set it up. It has to be, no, no, you can't talk about how the insurance companies oh. in the North that's right. became major financial players that's right. without you dealing with what were they insuring.
2: That's exactly yes. right.
3: And that's the problem. So how do see, you do see, it? I, well, well, I, I, think, I think how you do it is... You have, to, you have to accept and, and make slavery a part of it. See, he, here's what America likes to do. America, like, perfect example, um, um, History Channel has a series called uh, The Men Who Built America. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's a phenomenal um, multi-part series, and they're telling the story of Rockefeller, mm-hmm. Carnegie... Vanderbilt and J.P. Morgan, yes. and they're talking about this whole deal. How we America coming out of the Civil War, uh, and, and America then becomes this, this is launching this huge in, industrial power, the Industrial Revolution. Well, you got to deal with what funded that. Right. Oh. See that? See that? That's the problem. That's right. The, the problem with the teaching in this country is that they want to skip that part. No question. They want to skip the part of. How, okay, how did America grow and then, all the settling of America, well, how did that happen? Right. Like, where, where did that land all of a sudden come from? Yeah. How was the land taken? You no. gave it to folk. Yeah. You had a homestead act, but well,
2: who did you take it from? And that's the thing that, to the 1619 and, Project.
12: And, and, you know, the, and Native people, you know, much of their land was taken, and so when you start talking about... Carnegie and Rockefeller and all them. What you're talking about is the Homestead Act empowering white immigrants with these grants. Uh, formerly enslaved people did not have the opportunity to participate in that, but more than that, it, it, it hinged on the ability to exploit Native Americans.
2: But how right, how you make a curriculum? See, that's the thing. Like, well, no, like you have education project, no, no, freedom can... schools. You to, can to, do to it. To me, Pam, you can but... do the curriculum,
3: but that has to be... On the table, mm-hmm. right. and the problem with the the problem with these teaching is they want to leave all that out. Oh yeah, right. But you know, and we... just drop this question in right. and have no context, no nuance, That's no it. explanation as to okay, hold up. Why, why? Why am I doing this? So, so if, if I, so Pam, go ahead. Then I'm gonna finish. Go ahead, Frank. I,
11: I wanted to say that that one of the interesting <laughs> phenomenons is after the Civil War, how the entire narrative about the South was actually controlled by a bunch of women who went into pub- the public schools, into the schools, and created curriculum around changing the narrative of the Civil War and making it the war of Northern aggression or mm-hmm. the war of states mm. rights or whatever they made it, and that is still a predominant narrative there you in the go. South. So they created curriculum to to foster a certain type mm-hmm. of opinion. And now we're at a, at a stage in our country where perhaps our, our union is mature enough to go back now and and say, OK, mm-hmm. we can start dealing with some of these ghosts of our past. No, because no, we're, actually, we're, we're not, not mature radio. enough. Oh,
3: maybe, know, no, no, here, no here's, why, here's why we're not mature enough. The reason we're not mature enough is because we have not crossed the racial threshold. That's true. This is... Here's a piece. I said this yesterday, and actually I've been saying this for years. This next election, depending upon the turnout of black and Latino people, will be the first election in American history where less than 70% of the total electorate is white. See, what happens is, we, we... And this is where mainstream media plays this role. We have these conversations on television. We talk about the power of the black vote and the power of the Latino vote. But we don't want to say America's still a white country. Right. <laughs> when... In this last election, 71 to 72% of the total electorate was white. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about, well... The need to appeal to our issues, no, they're talking to white people mm-hmm. that's right. because the total electorate. And so the reckoning using one of the books of my man, uh, Randall Robinson, Robinson yeah. is when you hit that threshold that's right. and so it begins to change and see and that's, and that's actually what the fear is. Mm-hmm. See of course. The, I, I talked about that train earlier, so that, when you talk about the demographics, so the reckoning because now mm. we are the byproducts of the people who they never wanted to read.
10: Mm-hmm.
3: So the problem is... That's why I say we are y'all's worst nightmare. <laughs> because we are doing that one thing y'all didn't want our folks to do. That's right. And that is to read. So the problem is, mm-hmm. you and you and you and me with this platform, when I was on CNN for six years, I was saying stuff. They What in the <laughs> hell? <laughs> See, that's why... See, that's why... The the good Lord has had mercy on uh, the public school system because I ain't have no kids. (laughs) (laughs) Your nieces are doing the good. Because I'm letting (laughs) you know. Well, see, we raised my nieces on and off, but I'm talking about if they were in my house from the beginning. Right. See, I would be... It'd be like, uh, Mr. Martin... um, Here you come again. We're having some issues (laughs) because uh, your son or your daughter is not fully accepting of what is being taught. And I would probably then say, well, what did you teach him? And I'd probably Mm -hmm. say, well, that shit's a lie. (laughs) And so they're doing exactly what I told them to do. And that's the real piece right there, Pam, that the reckoning... So the threshold has to be crossed to where when we begin to ascend to power, in significant places, then that happens. That's why I keep telling y'all, stop listening to these dumbasses who say don't vote. There's a re, let me just unpack this real quick. Mm. How did Republicans, there was a time in Texas where Democrats controlled every statewide seat. John Tower in 1984 Mm. became the first became the first Republican elected statewide in Texas since Reconstruction. When the Republican Party really began to try to gain a foothold, do you know what they first took over? The State Board of Education. There you go. Because the State Board of Education controlled the textbooks. Mm -hmm. There are only three states in America that dominate textbooks for the other 47. Texas, California, and the state of New York. Because of the number of textbooks they buy. That's right. So they understand if you change a narrative. So, to Pam, your point, when they came in changing those curriculum, that was the whole point. Not the Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression. We talked about it the other day when Nikki Haley talked about it in South Carolina, oh, yeah. when they had the 100th anniversary dealing with the Civil War, they did not want to call it that. The historian, who was the only historian on the panel, said they want they change it to something else, that it's all by design. Mm-hmm. So, they don't, want, they don't want to use those terms. And so what we have to do, we have to resist that and call it what it T I E is, and say no, 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 no. To that point, you can't have these discussions about what Amer- what made America great if you want to ignore, yes, those reality. black bodies is capital.
12: You know, and of- that's
3: the pr- and, and so I'm, I'm going to go back to you, Julianne, because I'm going to go back to what I said to the brother doing the Marcus Garvey film which is also why Coretta Scott King said, they killed my Martin. hmm Which is also why it's hard for people, even black people, like, yo, why are you creating your own show? Because huh. America, and I keep telling y'all, on, which is what I said in Indianapolis, the state of black America, when I said, if you ask black people what are the five top issues in our community, and money is not in the top five. It's what the conversation John, Hope, Brian, and I had, as well, is when you start dealing with the money,
10: mm-hmm.
3: That's when Ameri- when white Americans start shaking in their boots. Julianne Pam.
12: I would just would uh, implore people who are watching this to run for boards of education yeah. in cities and in state because they do yeah. make dis- decisions about curriculum. That's what they let us
3: decisions. rewrite
2: curriculum in Philadelphia. Black. You know, but not
3: but not just curriculum. When you run for the school board, schools gonna always be built. So now you control the bond contracts. Right. Now you control who gets the, the software contracts, right. the IT contracts, the people out there who hate me for supporting charter schools. You know why I support charter schools? Because guess what? We in control of all of the resources. School buses. We ain't got to ask somebody. That's right. that, see, it, that's the piece that keeps... Mm. So again, so, to, so when people like, some of y'all can be waiting for Congress to pass the bill for reparations. That's fine. There's a way to take the money Mm-hmm. Right now, yeah. when you say running for a school board, how do you raise, if you raise, y'all, this is no lie, 20 plus years, I'm gonna let you talk, Pam, but guys, 20 plus years ago, I tried to get Black Enterprise to do a story, and it, it is the most frustrating thing for me when you see something and then other people don't wanna listen, and I don't care what y'all say, and the two brothers I was talking to, y'all know who you are. <laughs> 20 plus years ago, I had a conversation with Black Enterprise, and I said, y'all need to do an article on the economics of school board races. How, right. if black people raised $25,000, we could literally win five seats out of nine on a school board, mm-hmm. and now you control the economics. I was trying to get them out of them damn small, you know, you know how to open your business. I'm like, no, no, this is how you can talk about money mm-hmm. to black people, and, Pam, that's also the piece. So we wanna sit here and say, how can we raise, how can we help Kamala Harris raise $20 million to stay in the race? No, 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 you could literally take 50 grand and take over an entire school board, and now you control the curriculum, now you control the contracts, but that's really what we're dealing with. Go ahead.
11: Right. When I traveled to South Africa and Brazil, one of the things that I noticed about the black communities in those countries is that they did not necessarily have this sense of black cohesion, right? Because in Africa, you're Zulu or you're Xhosa. In Brazil, you're just mulatto anywhere on the spectrum of black. But in this country, because the white community said, if you're one drop black, you're black, then we also had a community of interest of which we were been able to organize. And so quite frankly, a black person from Mattapan, Massachusetts, or Oakland, California can walk across each other on the street in Louisiana, give a nod, and we all know what we're talking about. <laughs> that is actually our greatest strength. <laughs> and so what we have, what you're talking about makes so much sense when you think about what, how few votes actually win mm-hmm. local and municipal uh, elections. And so if we were to use our collective vote we could run so many things but the thing is and this is as a former candidate i find that black people hold black elected officials and candidates to much higher standards Uh than they hold White candidates to. uh, because they don't want you to walk to come to them and say i expect your support because i'm black too so now i not only have to because you know uh, and rightly so, perhaps. But now you have to be exceptional, and I yes. think that that is the greatest disservice that we as Black people do to mm-hmm. each other: is that we demand an exceptionality around the people who serve us, who who uh, are elected officials, mm-hmm. or people who are. A pastor,
3: that's whatever. a whole we, we other that, show right there. That's a I you
12: the ran truth. for today, right. you ran for Senate, and so it's not only Black people, but Black women are held to a much higher
10: standard
12: mm-hmm. and maybe black people are held to a high standard I ran for office in 1984 so a lifetime ago and I remember one one sister actually sending me an email that said I came outside and I did have a slip
2: on um, so why are they have I mean and I'm just thinking about Roy like say Roy's documentary he didn't get a chance to talk about Amy Ashwood and Amy Jotgar because Amy mm-hmm. Amy Ashwa Garvey co-founded the UNA with her husband at the time. It gets but, no credit. But, but the standard, right, but the standard, I'm thinking about these black women in the UNIA. their most powerful document, was their most powerful thing they contributed was probably, talking about the black press, the Negro world. They started a women's page in the Negro world. Ida B. Wells wrote in, 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 mm-hmm. in the Negro world. But I'm saying all this relative to curriculum, which we talking about in terms of economic control, wrong for this reason. That message in that newspaper, which caused them, if they caught you in the Negro world in South Africa, if they caught you in the Nigerian protectorate, you could literally be put in jail, Mm -hmm. because they understood that once you change the minds of our people, they will control the resources. So when you see, and they thought Garvey was crazy, but here we are with Roland Martin Unfiltered. Why do you support a platform like this? Because there's somebody now who didn't know anything we've been talking about for the last 90 minutes, who's writing something down, and when you said exceptionality and expectations, I think our people expected more, <coughs> more from you, more from our candidates, because it has been that form of absurd expectation that has produced a Barbara Jordan, that has produced a, a Marcus and Mosiah Garvey or Amy Jacques Garvey or Roland Martin. In other words, we do have to exceed expectations. Our people expect us to be beyond excellent, but the other side of that coin is if you have that expectation, you better, you better put your, your behind out here and pull this lever, and, and put this money right. on the table, and what happens, you are the rest of them. And
3: what happens <laughs> is we demand that from black folks, but we accept white mediocrity. it is. Yes. And that's, that's really the issue it. there, that's right. which, that's right. which, that's right. which is the exact same thing that they are... Look, they, I'm telling you right now, we have some mediocre white folks on TV. That's <laughs> true. <who> <out, laughs> first Oklahoma, of all, almost. Tucker Carlson is one of the most mediocre white boys you've ever seen in your life. That's a compliment. And I'm just letting y'all know, right. (laughs) And and, and, And they they hold hold him up (laughs) as being this amazingly talented. Let me tell y'all something. He's had failed shows on multiple networks and keep getting shows because the system is designed that way. (laughs) To Greg's point, when you talk about what changes, this is why media matters. Mm -hmm. I told y'all, this is why books, education, that's also media. Knowledge, information is power. And today, the Democrats announce their debates. And in February, when the Congressional Black Caucus holds their debate in Charleston, South Carolina, mm. steps away from where black folks were sold, CBS is going to have the debate. Nothing against CBS. Susan zarensky and uh, first of all CBS has, has the highest ranked black woman out of any media company out there uh, and that's my girl uh, uh, Kim she's the, she's the number two there uh, but here's the deal it's still baffling to me hmm. that you got eight black networks that target black folks that are either black owned and black targeted and they could not come together to form a consortium to say we are gonna do a debate hmm. to control hmm. the question I- see information see. they have it.
11: I do want to make a point here, though, that's very important to understand about our politics, is that there is not a political candidate out there running for president, for sure, who isn't afraid of engaging the black community why because they know that it is fraught to do that because you can so easily misstep um and we have sort of this cancel culture on social media people are deathly afraid of saying the wrong thing getting the video that they said something about whatever and so the way that they deal with that is to simply sidestep addressing black issues altogether the toxicity of our current politics means that if you say I'm going to listen to the issues of black women, or young black boys in jail, or girls who are being raped and 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 subject to much higher um, um, je- uh, criminal and 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 discipline in school. You know, if you say that, you know that Fox News is going to take that, and Tucker Carlson, the guy you just right. referenced, mm. is going to run with that. And all of a sudden, now you've got right wing hate sphere dealing with you. And so that is but, one of but the, here's the, the deal political hot potatoes where most candidates are just going to say no, no, well, no. Uh,
3: but, but you. But but, 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 but the black networks hold their own debate, you can't avoid not going exactly. to debate. And so the, so the problem is and this and so again, this is where the information comes in. So the problem is when you have eight black networks mm-hmm. that target black people that do 1344 hours of content a week and not a single of those eight have an hour dedicated to news, then you do not have a place, right. <laughs> place to get the information. Right. Tomorrow yeah, is the last day of the Tom Jordan morning show. I did my last commentary yesterday. Mm-hmm. Tom retires. It's effective at the end of this month. Tomorrow is the last live show of the Tom Jordan morning show. Oh, uh again, God. I've been with the show 11 of his 25 years. I did my last commentary on Wednesday. Beginning in January, he, he gets replaced by Ricky Smiley uh morning show. I'm saying that because again, Here's the issue that we have. It's an information issue. Yes. The the fundamental thing affecting us is an information issue. Yes. And so the problem that we have is that you have to have media sources. Damn, Julianne, really? (laughs) You can't figure out how to turn off your phone? No, I can't figure out how to turn off my phone. You know, we had this problem. Easy. (laughs) How about you press the Pass me your phone. (laughs) <laughs> Roland Martin unfiltered, y'all. <laughs> see the side of this phone? First of all, somebody's... First of all, bruh, Pam, we're um, live on unfil- the you air. <laughs> <laughs> Pam, get ready to go, so We I are live on you. the air right now. Don't FaceTime her oh, while we are on the air. We got to <laughs> go. She going to call you back. Woo. I'm literally ending the thank you. <laughs> wow. John... John, I ain't gonna say your last name. Please. Damn, <laughs> Julian.
2: Monty TV.
3: Hit uh, the <laughs> off button. I tried. No, you didn't. No. Didn't. He just talked to him. I'ma, you know what? I'm gonna do this here right now. <laughs> that was. I'm gonna turn your damn phone off. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> but you gotta sure I turn
2: it back on. No, no <laughs> it's.
3: See, Julian, when you come on TV, Julian, you got Lord have mercy. Let me, let me just. I'm about to just turn your on airplane. It's off. Oh. Lord, <laughs> Jesus. I'm sorry. I was talking about <laughs> information.
11: Yes. And
12: then
3: Tom the like... show right. ending. Right. The issue that we have is we do not have the enough information sources. Right. White America has Fox News, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN, Washington Post, New York Times. They have scale. They have daily operations that are operating seven days a week, Mm -hmm. that are driving out information, Our black newspapers. Chicago Defending was the last black daily, Mm. no longer a daily, Mm. so you don't have a day. So now, let me just unpack it. You don't have a black daily show. You got these folks out here, these new Negroes talking about their new media, okay, who wants to criticize this show, yet if you go watch their show, all they do is spend time denigrating other black people and dedicating an hour and two hours to trying to trash somebody else. They don't have guests. They don't have panelists. They're not inviting people in. So you don't have real news shows. Right. Who's my so, role? All, all them other fools out there they know I'm talking about. And so you don't have <laughs> I that. Don't. No, no. So the so the problem is mm-hmm. what we are dealing with as a people,
10: mm-hmm.
3: we're dealing with what I call news deserts. Right. So, wow. if and we... Had, so, no, no, no. News deserts. Yeah. No, because yeah. we get... Here's, here's why I don't use information desert. Mm. Because, see, if you use information desert... It, no, we got lots of information. Gossip is information. Yes. Mm-hmm. Love and hip-hop. What what, what, what what Lizzo did, twerking in L.A., which, that's a fine, whatever's her business, but that's information. Right. No, I'm talking about news. Right. What right. white folks have, they have news sources. They have 24-hour news radio stations. We have black targeted radio stations that play 24-hour music. There's very few news left. So the problem that we have is, when you hear the phrase, you don't know, you don't know, it's because literally, we are surrounded as a people. Mm. Every single day, by we are bombarded with images. We watch TV more than anybody else. All of that. The question is, what is coming into your mind and your body? So if you're not feeding your mind and your body news, if you're not taking that, what you're getting is you're getting all of these ads that are telling you to buy stuff, but you're not being countered by saying, don't buy the product, buy the stock. What you're not getting is you're not having somebody who is saying, okay, they're trying to take your vote, but then you don't have sources saying, explaining what the other, what the actual issues are. And so with that, we're walking around saying, I don't know, I didn't realize that. Man, I had no idea. To Greg's point, I can show you the Instagram post and the, tweet, twi- the tweets on Facebook A black was like, dude, it, I had no idea mm. any of that stuff happened. If I didn't actually hear that, people were saying, "Oh my goodness, uh, what I learned from you in the last 11 years on Tom Jones, I had no idea." Seriously? So when these things leave, so when an ebony craters, mm. mm-hmm. see, I'm about to unpack this, y'all. Even first. when in ebony craters, mm. so all of that that was built up over 65 years under John H. Johnson, now craters tragedy, bro. and all of a sudden, what happens? You take essence is still here. But what's the content what's being the content? produced? And who owns what's it? Is it no, it's black owned. Rick oh. Dennis owns oh, no, it. Yeah, the it the but the issue is That's right. how, what's what's
2: what's the what's the balance between beauty and hair tips? Rolling and news and information well, they did black see, history in essence in the 70s john henry clark used to write articles in essence in the 70s when you look at Essence I'm in the 70s and now it's not the same well, see, when, so, hey, so, when so so what, so, it what so what, it
12: took what? It, though when timing that's, right. that, that's right that's really what the setback was now the
3: brother who just no no but, he, no but here's the deal though when but first of all buddy here's the piece though but when ed when, when uh when when uh when when ed lewis had essence again we also have to have institutions are in a position to be able to say, when a black person who didn't have no money sells something, look, that's what they want to be able to do. But the question then is, what do we then do next? How do we... See, the issue for us has been, there's only one or two. No. So when somebody tries to tell me, like punk-ass boys Watkins... Yeah, I'm calling your name specifically. Unfiltered. When (laughs) punk-ass Boyce Watkins has the audacity to say, oh, Roland wants to be the only one, no, I don't want to be the only daily news show targeting black people. I want there to be more, but are you going to do it? And having a show don't mean you turn your YouTube camera on. And just talk the whole time. (laughs) Oh, Lord. No. Are you gonna go out and cover the news? Are you gonna go to the voting roll, to the voting locations on voting day and talk to people? Are you gonna take the cameras and travel? In a week, I'm going to Ghana. I've already hired a crew down in Ghana to come back and produce a two-hour special on the year of return. Hmm. See, that's what I'm talking about. So the real issue here is how are we developing and creating more of these institutions so it's not just one? So when somebody decides to retire, we can pass the baton. And that's what's really going on here. And so I need black people to understand Mm -hmm. our failure moving forward Mm -hmm. is that we are moving forward. We're going to cross that threshold and we're going to have fewer media products Mm -hmm. to be able to service our people. And let me deal with the last point here before before I go. And that is, I need black owners to deal with their ego. Yes. Mm-hmm. I keep telling y'all there are too many silos. The reality is here. Rupert Murdoch sold his Fox Entertainment assets to Disney for $71 billion. He had no problem sitting them down with Bob Iger right. and cutting the deal. That's right. When's the last black merge, media merger you heard about? Take mm. your time. <laughs> That's my point. So the question is, how do you build scale? Yeah. How do you create scale where now all of a sudden, you have diversified black media companies that have print products, and radio, and television, and digital, and events? See, that's really what this is all about. Y'all, I knew when Tom Jordan was gonna retire. I created this, this was given to me, God put this in my spirit, before TV1 even ended my show, because I saw the end of that show before everybody else did. Mm. Mm. I need y'all to understand something. Mm. (coughs) This gonna trip some of y'all out. I spent $150,000 of my own money on equipment before this show even got created, because I saw what was happening. What I need y'all to understand is that our future depends on having information sources they're feeding us, yes. nurturing us, nourishing us, and building us up. That's what Ebony did. That's what Jet did. That's what Chicago Defender did. That's what the North Star did. That's what Ida B. Wells Barnett did. Mm-hmm. It gave an opportunity for Ethel Payne to be able to do her work. That's and right. Alice Dunnigan to do her work. Right. And Chuck Stone would do his work. Right. And Vernon Jarrett to do his work. Lerone Bennett to do his work. Mm-hmm. And Simeon Booker to do his work. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on and on and on. The problem that we have today is that we have very few of those places where talented black journalists can go and thrive in black environments. And when you ask the question, Pam, where did Marcus Garvey get that from? People ask me, well, where did you get this from? Because the first paid job I had was from the Houston Defender. Hmm. Mm. Not the Bryan College Station Eagle where I worked in college. Not KBTX where I interned, where a white news director would not hire me as a weekend sports anchor because of a previous experience with a black man. Mm. Not the local <laughs> radio station. It was a
2: black newspaper. Watch this, Roland. Marcus Garvey's father was a printer. he printed print stonemason. Garvey apprenticed as a printer. He started as a journalist as a teenager. And when he left Jamaica, came through Costa Rica and Panama, he went to London, and his first job as a journalist was on the African Times and Orient Review, a black-owned newspaper. And that's where the Negro came from. <laughs> that's crazy.
3: where it comes from. Because when I worked for a black newspaper, wow. the woman who owned it was a black woman, wow. and I saw black person running a media company yes, who had the power to talk to members of Congress and the president and the governor and the mayor and folks. That's how this works. Our future depends on whether or not we're going to either support or let black media die. That's right. It's real simple. If you want to support what we do, go to rollamarkandthefilter.com. The reason we're here five days a week, really seven days a week, is because we're not trying to ask somebody else to tell our story, okay? I'm not, and there's, look, I got I, kudos to Nicole Hannah Jones and the folks with the 1619-2019 project at the New York Times. But here's the piece: I'm not trying to ask the New York Times, can we do this? We just want to do it. That's why we got to support our own. Our panel, thanks a bunch. RolandMarkinMafilter.com. Go support us: PayPal, Cash App, uh, as well as Square. I'll see you guys tomorrow from Dallas. Where I'll be, of course, doing the Q and A with Spike Lee on a Saturday. So I'll be in Big D tomorrow. How?